Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we are continuing in and actually finishing up today our last week of When the Devil Knocks, and we are excited. I am excited to be able to get into the topic this morning, and I pray uh, that God will just do great things in our midst, that he will continue to open our hearts and minds to what he has for us, and that we will continue to realize that we have a very real enemy in the world today. We have a very real enemy who is desiring to attack us and come at us. And we've talked for two weeks now. If you haven't been here uh, for the previous two weeks, I encourage you to, to go online. You can pull those up on our app, Northgoodland. I'm sorry, on our website, northgoodland.org, or on our app at Northgoodland BC in your app store. And you can watch those and kind of look back at those. And so see how we've already covered a couple different areas of attack that Satan desires to use in our lives. But I have to stress again, Every time we come to talking about Satan or the war that we find ourselves in spiritually, we have to know that, yes, we have a very real enemy who desires to attack us, who desires to, to come against us and see nothing but, but bad things come in our lives. But we have a victory in Christ. We've already overcome. Jesus has already given us the victory. Yes, he will attack us, but he has already been defeated. And we need to know that. Before we ever get into a topic about Satan or what he desires to do against us in our lives, we have to remind ourselves at the very beginning that he is defeated, that we have overcome in Christ. And so we understand he's a real enemy, but man, the knowledge to know that you are already more than conquerors in Christ Jesus is so freeing. To know that when we go through those temptations, those attacks, those little mini wars and battles we find ourselves in, that we have overcome through Christ is so great. And let me just emphasize again, you don't overcome because of you. You don't overcome because you're strong enough. Because you've just got enough willpower. You don't overcome because of your ability to stand against Satan. You only overcome. And you are only victorious because of Christ in you. Uh, if it was up to us, and when it is up to us, we surrender, we give in, we quit, we fall down, we give in to the temptation, we never will succeed on our own. But man, Christ in us, there is power in his name. And so remind yourself of that, uh, because I think it's easy to get caught up in, as we're going to talk about this morning, thinking it's more about us than about him. Uh, in Christ, by his grace, there is no condemnation before God, so therefore we are set free from any deception and lies the enemy brings against us. We've talked about the fact that Satan uses a couple different attacks. He talks about and kind of convinces us of, of, us of lies that he speaks against us. He is deceiving to us about ourselves and God. So he is a deceiver. He comes against us that way, but also he is a, an enemy who accuses us. He wants to bring all our sin back to memory. He wants to throw it back in our face and tell us things like, God could never use someone like you. If you were really a follower of Christ, you never would have done this or that. And if you don't believe his lies, then he tries to accuse you of who you think you need to think you are. But yet again, where do we go for the truth? We go to God's word and we find out, no, in Christ, I am forgiven and I am free. See, he, Satan is also, and in your notes there, you can jot this down. You should have an insert in your bullets in there. Satan is also the destroyer who attacks your will with pride. He is the destroyer who attacks your will with pride. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Very popular passage. Uh, very popular verse. But First Peter 5, 8. It says here, and I got to always mention this. I love hearing that sound of, God's word turning. Amen. I love seeing and hearing people get into God's word for themselves. But first Peter five, eight, be sober, 
be vigilant. So those are two key words. This is, this is Peter giving encouragement to the church. Be sober and be vigilant. Now, when we think sober, we think free of alcohol, right? Like I'm not under the influence of alcohol. I'm sober. But when Peter's using this word, it's not just in that way. It's also talking about sober in our mind, meaning we're thinking the right things about whatever we're coming up against. We're aware of truth and we're thinking clearly about this thing. That's the idea, uh, which really is why we use that word when somebody's under the influence, they're not thinking very clearly. When they aren't under the influence of something, they are thinking more clear and more level-headed. And so Peter's saying, be of the right thinking. Be of a clear mind. Think about this thing the right way. And I love that it's that kind of understanding because when I understand who Satan is, a defeated enemy who will rise up and come against me, I'm going to think about him in the right way. I'm not going to think about him as an equal to God that's going to overcome and overtake me. I'm going to think of him as somebody who's already been defeated, but I need to be aware of him. So we need to have the right thinking. Then he says, be vigilant, kind of be on guard, be aware. Because your adversary, which really the word Satan is just the idea of adversary. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You see, Satan has one goal, one desire, one end game to devour you, to overtake you, to destroy you. John chapter 10, verse 10, we read, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus says, I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. See, 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us there is an enemy, an adversary, somebody who's in opposition to us, and in reality, opposition to God, who comes against us with one desire to devour you. Now, I love that Peter says he's like a roaring lion. There's this intimidation. There's this, 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 how do you want to say this? There's this appeal to Satan that we see him in the flesh as this strong adversary. But I, I want you to realize that's, that's how we perceive him. That's not who he really is before God. There's only one lion of Judah, right? And he is the true conqueror. But to us, he's like this intimidating force that comes against us. And he's loud, right? He's intimidating. He's in our face. So we're aware. We're vigilant. We're on guard. We think about him in the right way. We, we're aware of his attacks, isn't it amazing that when you read Genesis chapter 3, as we did a couple weeks ago, his attacks don't really change. His strategy doesn't really change. Do you know why his strategy hasn't changed in all these thousands and thousands of years of humanity being on this earth? Because it still works, right? Exactly. We still fall for the same tricks, the same traps, the same strategies. And so Peter's saying, man, would you have the right mindset about this thing? When he comes to you, because sometimes he comes as that roaring lion. Sometimes he comes as that angel of light. Sometimes he comes as that, that appearance of, man, you really need this in your life. If you had this or you had that, then you'd really be satisfied. If you had this relationship or this financial success or this thing, man, then you'd really be happy. See, sometimes it's this intimidating force. Other times it's this subtle deception that appears like something really good. And we have to be aware. We have to think about these things the right way. And here's the beauty of this. Let me just cut to the, the good part. When we buy his lies, when we give in to the deception, when we believe the accusation, when we walk in defeat, God's grace is there to pick us back up. We just have to turn. So as we see this passage here, Peter's warning us about this enemy. 
He's a serious enemy. He's a serious adversary. We take him at, at, at the word of God's given. It's, it's, he's an adversary we need to be aware of. We have to be understanding that he is out there. But we've overcome. But we've overcome. John chapter 10, verse 10. I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. See, there's two individuals in John 10.10. 10. There's the thief that comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's Satan. That's the adversary. But then there's Jesus who comes to give us life, that we may have it more abundantly. And that abundant life is not in the possession of things or the accumulation of things. It's in the fullness of Christ in us. It's in the eternal life that we have that abundant life. In Christ, we cannot be devoured completely because we are sealed into the day of redemption. So Satan's going to come against you. He's going to try to devour you. He's going to try to destroy you. But in Christ, we will never be overcome. But like is true of anything else, that doesn't mean he's not going to try. He's still going to come against us. He's still going to desire to destroy your relationships, destroy what God has for you. While we have recognized Satan's weapons of deception and accusations, he has another weapon that is as powerful to lead us astray and lead us away into destruction. We've talked about his deception and his accusations. And those are strong weapons that want to lead us away from what God has for us. Lead us into destruction. But there's a third weapon that he uses that I would suggest is even greater. It's more powerful in its destructive capabilities. Turn over to 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Going all the way back into the Old Testament. And if I would ask you this question, I don't know what your answer would be, but I think I could kind of guess. If I was to ask you, what was David's, King David's, greatest sin? Now, don't answer out loud. But if I was to pose that question and I was to ask for a response, I think some of us might say, that's pretty easy. Obviously, the act of adultery that he committed with Bathsheba, that was a pretty, when you look at the life of David, that was a great sin as far as its destructive power in his life and in his rule. Others may say, no, that was a bad sin. But I mean, when he had her husband killed to cover up the sin, that was a really bad sin. That's got to be the worst sin that David ever committed. But I would suggest here in 1 Chronicles, we read about a greater sin than even those. We read about a sin that had the power to overtake David in his thinking, in his decision-making, and led to some very serious consequences. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1, we see Satan's most destructive weapon, and we understand David's sin of pride. So we see David's sin of pride. First Chronicles 21, 1 Chronicles 21.1 And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now we've got to notice some things here. And Satan stood up against Israel, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and his way to stand up against them and to oppose them and to attack them wasn't to attack them on a broad scale. It was to go after David. So see the connection here. His goal is to attack Israel, which is really what, for what reason? And we've talked about this before. Why does Satan even come after us? Why does he go after Israel? Why does he go after David? Not because he cares about them as individuals, because he wants to hurt the father. He wants to go after the father. So if I can get God's chosen people, if I can get David, if I can get the church, if I can get this believer, then I'm hurting the father, which is really his end 
game. So he says here, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Verse 2. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Now, when you first read this passage, you might think, what's the big deal here? I mean, what's really the problem here? It's just David looking for a census. But in the story, David was lifted up with pride and calls for a census of the people. Now, there's a really popular book in the Old Testament that actually is really a census at its core. And that's the book of, anyone know? Numbers, right? Why do we have the book of Numbers? Because it's a book of numbers, right? Pretty simple, okay? But so a census in the Old Testament is not a bad thing. It's not intrinsically sinful. There's nothing wrong with the censuses we see in Scripture. So why here, in this moment, is this an issue? The reason is because the census was an extension of David's pride. He wanted to know that he was the man. He wanted to be affirmed in all his glory. He, it was all about just his own pride, his own ego, what he has accomplished and the great king that he is. See, the problem with this census was the heart of David in giving it and asking for it. You see, David wanted to see and know how amazing he was. It was all about him. Some have suggested this census could have taken as much as 10 months to accomplish. In one commentary, it was like nine months and so many weeks and so on. So we say roughly 10 months. 10 months to accomplish this great work of getting all these numbers. Some have said it maybe wasn't of the whole nation. It most likely was just of the military force. That David was wanting to just see the might of his army. But either way, and however we break this apart, the census in and of itself was not of, 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 not of God. First Chronicles chapter 21, look at verses 6 and 7. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. In the King James, it says, and God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. I wanted to read it in a different translation to get that different wording there. It speaks to me so strongly that God, that he punished the nation for this. And that Joab himself was repulsed by David's pride. You see, when David let his pride rule him, it brought consequences that affected many. See, pride is Satan's, I believe, most destructive weapon he brings against us. Because he stirs it up in us and he makes us believe that we are really all that. That we really deserve all that we have and oh, so much more. And that pride stirs inside of us and it stirs inside of us and it pushes us to want to see what we want, not what God wants. That we get what we want. It doesn't really matter what God's kingdom is about. You see, when David let his pride rule him, it brought consequences. Look at verses 11 through 14. We're going to read that God gives David a choice. And David has to choose the consequence of his pride. We're going to find out that 70,000 people lose their life. 70,000 people lose their lives. Look, look at verse 11. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, choose thee. 
And I always have to do this. Imagine you're David in this moment. Either three years famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtake thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. Now, therefore, advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Three choices. Three options. What do you want to do, David? What choice are you going to make? Verse 13. And David said unto God, to Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. This is, this is serious stuff here. David committed a sin against God in his pride. And in his efforts to create a census to display his own greatness, God humbled him and actually reduced the number in Israel. That's not just God being ironic. That's God making a point. God is saying, here, David, you think you're so great. You think you're in charge. You think you have all the power. Here's what I'm going to show you, David. I can reduce or increase the number in Israel in three days. I hold the power. I am the one that is in charge. I am the authority here. And he was reminding David of this through a very serious lesson. Now, it is believed that this judgment was not just for David. Because we have a hard time with this when we read this, because who doesn't die at the hand of the disease? David. And that really, I'm going to tell you guys, when I read that, I kind of get a little irritated with God. Can I admit that in church? I probably should admit that anywhere, no matter in church or not. I'm sure none of you ever get irritated with God or frustrated with something that God does or has done. I'm sure that never happens for you. But for me, as a, just a weak person, I, I, I find myself getting frustrated with God. And that used to irritate me that I would think, God, so David did this thing. And the judgment on David is that 70,000 people lose their lives, but David lives. I mean, God, I don't understand that. I was studying through this passage again this week, preparing for the message, and it came out to me that there's been some suggestion, I never thought about it this way, that those 70,000, most likely, they were being judged of God for their own issues. Some have even suggested they may have been some that were loyal to Absalom when Absalom, David's son, tried to take over, that they were actually loyal to Absalom and God was removing them from the land because they were going to continue to cause division in the land. You see, sometimes God... We'll, we'll bring something to our attention. We'll judge us in an area. And he doesn't waste that judgment on just one lesson here, one lesson here. He tries to show many, this is what I'm doing. This is, I'm not going to let this go to waste. I'm going to use this to not only remind David of who true king, who the true king is. I'm not going to remind David of humility before me, but I'm going to use it also to do this work that is of my will and this part of my plan and this part of my plan. You see, the point here is, yes, David sinned before God. Yes, David's pride rose up against him. But I want us to know that David made a choice to trust God even in judgment. I mean, did you see that in the passage there? He says again in verse 13, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. For very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Do you know, even as God was bringing judgment against David and Israel, David said, I'll still trust God. 
I'm still going to, I'd rather fall into the hands of the Lord and let his judgment rule over me than fall into the hand of man. Why? Because even in God's judgment, he is merciful. Even in God's judgment, he is gracious. The key, if I could stress anything from this, is don't let your guard down. When we talk about David's sin of pride, we have to remind ourselves that it came in a moment where David let his guard down. Satan was the tempter. Satan came to him and tried to entice him. The word there in the King James is the word provoked. Another way to say this, enticed him. That Satan enticed David to do this thing. So he kind of enticed his pride. David gave in. He let his guard down and he made a choice. The truth is you and I may never be more vulnerable than when we are full of pride. You and I may never be more vulnerable to to the enemy, to his attacks, to temptation, than when we are full of pride. Proverbs 16, 18 said, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. That gets quoted a lot. Gets quoted a ton, but I wonder how many of us actually apply that. I'll be honest with you. Pride is something that is so deceiving, it creeps up on us. We don't even know we're prideful. And so God's gracious initiative through the Holy Spirit reminds us, whether through his word or through someone else. You know, I I do believe there are a lot of believers in our world today that are full of pride. We somehow think that because we've merely been forgiven that we're better than those that have not been forgiven in Christ. We merely have received the gift that's offered to all mankind And we think because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that somehow we are better than our neighbors who don't know Christ because, well, look at them. Look how they sin. Look at all the evils they do. I mean, I don't do that. I'm better than them. I would ask a question. What do you have that you have not been given by God's gracious hand? And if the answer that you come up with is, oh, nothing. Everything I have, have been given to you by, it's been given to me by God's gracious initiative in my life. Then what do you have to be prideful of other than saying, I will boast in the cross of Christ? See, Satan knows we're at our core prideful beings. We want our way. I mean, that's the whole mantra of our world today, isn't it? Your way, at your time, your price, consumerism, get the deal. By the way, this translates to the church as well. I go to the church that gives me what I want, that does what I want, the music I like, the preaching I like. It's just, it's, it's, it's in our core. It rises up in us. And Satan, knowing that, will entice us in our pride. But we have to stand against that, keep our guard up in Christ, and realize that, no, it's not about me, it's about him. You see, pride at its core is truly the base of all sin. And it leads us to believe that whatever we want in that moment is better than what God would have for us. It is the most destructive sin because it leads us away from complete dependence on the Lord. So what is our defense? How do we defend against this pride that arises inside of us? How do we defend against the enemy when he comes against us and he attacks our will with pride? The defense against pride is not just saying, I'll be more humble. I'll be more humble. I won't be as prideful, Lord. I'll take care of it, Lord. Is there a more prideful statement? Lord, I know I've been dealing with pride, but trust me, I've got this. I'll be more humble from now on. I'm humble enough to be humble, so I'll be fine. 
See, the defense against pride is not just saying, I'll be more humble, I'll do better, I'll just do better. The defense against pride is the knowledge of grace. To grow in the knowledge of grace is our greatest weapon against pride. First Chronicles 21.8. I love that David was a man that was so fast and so quick when confronted with his sin to do the right thing. You see, the truth is we have nothing to boast in but sin. First Chronicles 21.8. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Man, just the, just the honesty in David's prayer. I'll be honest with you. I've prayed a prayer like that. Have you? You ever pray a prayer where you go, God, I've done really foolishly. And see, the crazy thing is, we talked about it last week, or maybe it was the week before. We go to him saying, Lord, the decision I just made was really foolish. Would you forgive me and take away my iniquity? And yet in the New Testament, we read that if we would go to him before we make the decision, we can ask for his wisdom, and we would be full of peace when we make that decision. But you know what God is gracious in, as we said last week? When we go to him and we ask for his wisdom, even after we made the decision, and we know we should have asked for his wisdom first, it says he gives it to us freely. He doesn't hold it against us that we're waiting till now to ask. You see, David made a decision to recognize his sin, go to God about his sin, and confess his sin. I've sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But do you notice he's not just confessing his sin, he's recognizing the availability of grace. I mean, do you see that there? In the same breath, God, I know I have sinned, so I'm asking for your grace to remove my iniquities, my sins. See, whenever we're before the presence of God, we'll become aware of two very clear things, our sin and his grace. We'll recognize our sin. If we confess our sins and repent of our sins, we'll also be aware of the grace he gives us to be forgiven. David admitted his sin before God and sought forgiveness. To be honest, I have to note this. I feel really bad for David sometimes. Actually, often. You might say, how do you feel bad for David? Can you just stop for a second and imagine if every single sin you ever committed was recorded in Scripture for all to read? Yeah, that's called nervous laughter. That's what that was. That was, whoa, that's not, please don't let that be a bestseller, right? Like nobody buy that book. And David, from the time of being a child, his great victories are recorded for us. He's a great man of God. And yet also his greatest failures are recorded for us. And I feel bad because when I read these words, I think, man, God, if you were to write a book about my sin, and I, it, it wouldn't read so eloquent. <laughs> but God is so gracious in that while we read these accounts of sin, you need to understand that God, when you read later in the word of God, you're going to find out that he calls David a man after his own heart. That it says in Acts that David served the purposes of God in his own generation. That David was a faithful man. Does that mean God didn't care about his sin? No. He deals with the sin pretty severely. But he wants us to know that when we come to him, we confess and we repent, the sin is truly forgiven. And while we read of these failures and these, these sins that David committed, we also read in the very same word that God is gracious to forgive. 
that God will, in fact, as David prayed, remove my iniquity, and God does. Show me grace, and God does. The repentant psalm, when David repented of his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, God restores the joy of his salvation and forgives him of his sin. All of us need to be reminded that following David's sin of pride, he repented and sought forgiveness. And the Lord records David's life as one of faithfulness. But I'm also thankful that the mistakes are there. I'm also thankful the sins are there. And here's why. Was David a perfect man? Perfect faith? Easy answer. No. We just read about his sin of pride. So that is a great encouragement to me. And that should be a great encouragement to you that you know that, yes, we struggle in sin. We need to repent and turn from our sin. And God takes it very seriously. But when the enemy comes accusing us and deceiving us and trying to rise up our pride, we go, no, all I have to offer God is sin and all he gives me is grace. And so I receive what he has for me and I stand on the victory of Christ. I'm not going to be full of pride. I have nothing to offer but sin. But I also love that God doesn't only call perfect people. He calls people who make themselves available to him. To say, I'll go, Lord. Send me. See, sometimes we think we've got to be perfect, but the key, as we've said all these last three weeks, it's not perfection, it's faithfulness. So how can we respond to our God in any other way than complete humility the more we grow in the knowledge of grace? And as we grow in the knowledge of grace, what will be a, a byproduct of that humility? Go over to James chapter 4. One more passage I want to look at. I say that, it may be the last passage. James chapter 4 and verse 6. James chapter 4. Such a powerful little epistle, little book here. Uh, If you've never really studied through the book of James, I encourage it. It's such a powerful reminder of what the walk with Christ can be. And what God has done for us. But in chapter 4, verse 6. So it says here, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he, excuse me, he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's amazing. In verse 6, we see that played out not only in David's life, right? We just emphasized his acknowledgement of his sin, his repentance of the sin, his desire to, to please God moving forward. He trusts in God's mercy, even in judgment. But when you compare the life of David and King Saul in the Old Testament, you're going to see this exact thing, pride and God resisting that individual and grace and God, or I mean, and humility and God giving that person grace. King Saul was the first king chosen by the people because of his appearance, his strength, he started off pretty well and then got derailed pretty quickly. But when you see David, you see not really chosen by the people, overlooked by his own family. His own father didn't think he was really eligible to be king. And yet God does great things through King David. And so we see this verse played out in the life of Saul and David to a pretty large extent. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Man, what a powerful verse that is. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Put yourself in submission of God and to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, not because you're telling him to leave, but because you're submitting yourself to God. God is reminding you of how to think soberly, how to be vigilant, and who he really is and who you really are. 
Verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I like James is real subtle here. He's just so casual about it, you know. He's never one to be, you know, intense or in your face. He's so easygoing. Draw nigh to God. I got to read it again. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he's calling these people to repentance. He's saying, listen, trust in the cleansing power of Christ. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Man, when you realize the reality of what James is saying here, the more I understand grace, the more I understand what I've been forgiven of, the more I see him doing these works in my life and cleansing me of this and washing this away, it's amazing to see how God will humble us, but at the same moment, lift us up. Because when we stop trying to lift ourselves up and we humble ourselves before God, God will lift us up in due time. He will be the one that takes care of us. He will be the one that strengthens us. Humility is realizing that I have nothing in and of myself to gain me favor with God. I am in desperate need of grace and I am not better than anyone else, no matter their particular sin issue. Man, I think our church culture, if I can be really, really bold for a second, I think our church culture really needs to get a handle on that reality. I am not better than anyone else, no matter their particular sin issue. We are in a weird time today where I feel like so many Christians are elevating some sins and lowering other sins and saying these people are really, really bad. And these people, well, they're just normal sinners. Man, sin is sin. For the wages of sin... In the Greek, that word for sin is the all-encompassing word for sin. All sin, every and all sins will lead to the wages, which is death, separation from God. But our God is so gracious that he gives us eternal life through Christ. An attitude of the heart that gives rise to the expression of the submission to God's will and purposes is an expression or an attitude of humility an attitude of the heart that gives rise to the expression of the submission to God's will and purpose by more than a posture of humility. See, it's this idea of humility. I'm just coming under God's will. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I'm submitted to him. And it's not just saying I want to be humble. It's expressing it through my heart and my desires. See, it comes from an awareness of our limitations. When I acknowledge that God is greater, I know that I have limitations and I need him. If we start to feel all puffed up, all prideful, all we need to do is ask ourselves a simple question, which I've already asked you this morning. What do you have that you have not received? And the answer is nothing. The truth is we all battle with pride. I battle with pride. Uh, There are times where uh, something that Satan will try to entice me with, There are other times where it goes the other way and my pride gets wounded, right? When I feel as though I should have more or doing more and be be at a different position and, and then it doesn't happen and I'm, oh God, why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that? And it's all about what I want. We have to realize we all battle with pride in this life. When we think we are better than someone else, when we think we're more than someone else, Ultimately, it's when we think it's all about us. 
There's a reference here I'm going to give you. And we aren't going to go there for time's sake because I want to give some time for invitation. But Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 12. Jot that down in your notes there. Maybe it's already in your notes. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 12. Jesus tells a parable about a religious man and a publican or a tax collector who go to the temple. And it's a pretty popular parable, pretty popular story. Many, many of you probably know it. But he tells this story about this rich man or this religious man and this publican. And they go to the temple. He tells another parable about a rich man. But anyway, that's a different passage. But they're in the temple and they're praying. And they're, they're worshiping and they're praying to God. And the religious man in this story is got his face up to heaven, his hands lifted high, and he's kind of giving a spiritual resume to God. Look at all the things I've done. I fast all this much. I've done all of this. Look at all the things I've done for you, God. And he actually says in his prayer, I'm also very thankful that I'm not like these other ones. I'm not like this tax collector, this publican over here, this sinner. Thank you for not making me like them. He's just boasting in all these religious things that he's done. And then the story switches to the prayer of the tax collector, the publican. And his face is down. I believe the passage says he's, he's hitting his chest. He's in submission to God. He's in humility before God. And he's just crying out for grace, admitting his sin, admitting that he's sinned before God, asking for mercy. And what's amazing to me is I, I picture this as though he's an earshot of the religious man. And he's hearing, I believe, the rich religious man, if he's praying out loud, he would hear him say, thank you for not making me like this guy over here. And odds are this publican, this tax collector, who's been in that culture seen as the greatest kind of sinner. Do you know the only other kind of sin in, for a Jew in first century uh, Israel during the time of Christ that would be comparable to that of tax collector was that of a harlot or a prostitute? And in some, they would say that they saw tax collectors as even worse than harlots or prostitutes. They saw him as enemies betraying the nation of Israel in allegiance with the, the nation of Rome or the, the occupying force. I mean, just look down upon in that culture. And here's this religious person who has all the robes, all the paraphernalia, goes to, to the temple, looks the part, sounds the part, is always getting people coming to him, asking for prayer, doing all these religious things. And he hears this religious guy say, thank you for not making me like this guy. And this guy's over here going, man, God, how bad am I? And he just humbles himself and he just lowers himself. And he's just looking down saying, God, I can't even look up to you. I just need your mercy. And I, what I love about that story is what Jesus says at the very end. He says, these men left the temple. The tax collector went down justified rather than the other man. Do you know what that tells me in this parable? That Jesus is not impressed with your spiritual resume. Jesus is not impressed with how much you tithe. Jesus is not impressed about how many hours you spend in his word. Jesus is not impressed with how often you pray. Jesus is not impressed with how many hours or services you attend or how many ways you serve or how many Bible lessons you've taught. He's not impressed with any of it when we go to him in pride and go, oh, look at all that I've done. Do you know what Jesus wants and desires most of us is a, a heart that is just laid bare before him in humility and says, God, I just need your grace. God, I, I, just, I just need you. I got nothing. 
And you know what's amazing? It's out of that kind of humility and that kind of brokenness that God then goes, now watch what I can do with your life. Now we're in his word, not because we're trying to impress him, but we're trying to get to know him. And we want to please him by spending time with him. We're praying not because we're trying to impress him, but because we believe he can intervene and he can do what needs to be done. We're in church not to impress him, by the way, or others. We're here because he is here. We want to worship him and lift him up. See, the whole thing changes. Our whole mindset changes when we realize in humility, it's not about impressing God. It's about living in a way of great submission before God because he's given us all we could ever need or want. So the questions in your notes there are just for you to challenge you as I've been challenged this week. What's an area of your life where you need to humble yourself before God? What's an area of your life where you need to humble yourself before God? What would that look like for you? Maybe this morning we're going to have a time of invitation. And the band's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. But maybe you would come and just bend a knee. And you would just come as an individual and say, God, I just need to humble myself in this area, Lord. But I need to know that that humility really comes from a knowledge of grace. Lord, I've been really proud in this way. I've actually thought I'm better than someone else, whether it be an unsafe person or even another believer. Lord, I've looked down on people because they sin differently than me. But God, I pray that I would realize it's all about your grace. And again, I have to say this. I'm not saying that consequences don't come, that there aren't consequences to our sin choices. Of course there are. Whether they're internal and personal or external and public, they come. And so we understand sin is serious, but may we never, may we never forget that the only reason I'm forgiven is because of grace. It's not in me. I don't cleanse myself. What James is talking about in that passage is not saying I do that to get relationship with God. It's saying as I have a relationship with God, I, cle- I make the choice to cleanse my hands of these things. It's a, I make a choice to resist this and to stop doing that, but it's only because I have a relationship with him and his spirit is working in me and I'm able to do these things. See, even when we choose to live in a way that honors him, we only do it because the spirit of God is giving us the ability to do so. And so I want to encourage you guys this morning, as I've been praying all week for what God would do, I'm just praying that we would grow in our knowledge of grace, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, asking him to remind us of who he is, of who we are. And then we would leave this place, not with our heads down, beating ourselves up, but with heads lifted high, thankful for his grace, knowing we are sons and daughters of God. And therefore he has called us to something so much greater than what we can even imagine. And let's be excited for that. Let's be, and look forward to that with anticipation, desiring him to move in us in new ways. Would you bow your heads with me as we, Go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would, as only you can, as we spend this time before you, responding to what we've heard, responding to what you're doing in our lives. Lord, that we would, as we understand grace even more, that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is battling with the sin of pride, that the enemy is enticing them to make decisions based in the pride that they're feeling for themselves, that they feel like it's all about them, what's best for them and what they want above all else. I pray, Lord, that as only you can, you would break that, that pride in our hearts and in our minds, 
that we would humble ourselves before you, realizing there's nothing we have that we have not received. And Lord, I thank you for the reality of not only your conviction of sin, which is so needful, but also the reality of the forgiveness you offer. That when we come before you, Lord, and we just lay our hearts before you and we confess before you that we have done this thing, that there's the availability of forgiveness and grace in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as only you can, that you would draw draw us to the response that we need to make this morning. And thank you for all that you're doing. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has been battling this sin of pride and this arrogant spirit, looking down on others or whether they're in the church or out of the church, saved or unsaved, Lord, I truly believe that if we're called to represent you and your grace, your gospel, then yes, we'll speak truth and we'll call sin, sin. But Lord, we'll do it as Galatians 6 says, humbly, realizing that by the grace of God, there go I. Lord, I know I forget that so often. It's so easy to point out other people's sins while I think to myself, I'm so thankful that I've been forgiven of my sin. And so Lord, give us wisdom in all of this that you would be glorified above all things. Draw us now to whatever decisions we need to make for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? However God is moving, would you respond, whether they're in your seats or whether you want to come and pray? Let's respond to what God is doing and look forward with great anticipation as he continues to open our hearts and minds to his will and his word. Would you respond this morning as we sing?